Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Welcome to Escaping Society, episode 29, Lifeblood. I'm Teresa. And I'm Gumby. And this is really the first time we've recorded in a building. So we're inside our local public library. We scheduled a meeting room. It's kind of weird. I'm going to be honest and say I'm a little freaked out. <laughs> but we'll see how it sounds because um, it's getting colder and rainier. They're in North Carolina. And... This episode, we call it Lifeblood because it's about water, and water, we are water. So we're going to talk a little bit about what that means, um, some some of the things that are the state of water today in the world, and a little bit about how we can gather water safely, as well as probably some our, some of our personal stories. And I'll just get it started by saying... I never really considered myself a water person. I don't really like to swim. Um, I like to go see the ocean and lakes and stuff, but I'm not one of those that just has to go every year or every whatever season. Um, but as I'm living more this lifestyle, like like bathing in the rivers and washing my clothes and my dishes in the rivers and streams, it's really special. Like I'm starting to uncover a side of me that it isn't so much that I look at water as this thing, this resource, but I'm looking at it like a friend. So that is something that uh, is evolving in my life. What about you? Well, I would go even further than that. The more I think about water, the more I realize how um, we objectify things, you know, like there's us and there's water. So even as we get to acknowledge water as a living being, you know, that seems like a stretch from our cultural standards. There's still like water is my friend as if it's separate from us. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'm realizing is when we talk about water, we are in fact in a very, even by our scientific standards, talking about ourselves, we are water. We are mostly water. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just find that to be a huge paradigm shifting thing because when I talk about the health of the water, the state of the water in the world, um, how to find water even in a survival situation, I am talking about myself. You know, it's a whole question about what we call ourself, our sense of self, how we define that. It's Mm -hmm. so much bigger and different than we're taught in our culture. What is self? Um, So, yeah, that's been kind of a mind-expanding thing I've been exploring in myself lately, myself, Mm -hmm. is that I am, in fact, thinking, feeling, moving water. Um, And, yeah, just let that percolate like water through the water table. (laughs) Um, But it really changes the way I I treat and feel about water when I, I remind myself that, you know, I am water. I'm water talking about itself. Yeah, and 66% of the human body is water. And it's interesting that 75% of the brain is water. And what was that that other note that you have there? And tree. 
Oh, uh, as I was researching, the 75% of the human brain is water, and 75% of a tree is also water. Cool. So a higher percentage of the plant life around us is water. So we're kind of like mostly water walking around with other things thrown in. Where <laughs> another way to look at the human being is polluted water. Mm. You nasty. <laughs> um, 70% of the world is covered with water. I was uh, looking up some numbers as we were getting ready for this podcast. And usually, I got to say, like, numbers don't tend to impress me unless they lead me to greater truths and I can uh, transcend the numbers. I think numbers, and I'm reading a, a book by John Zerzan right now, where he's, in fact, the part I'm reading is he's questioning numbers, mm. how our culture uses that to define the universe. Um, and I think it is a poor definition of the universe. But some of these numbers I throw out there to, I don't know, maybe impress or speak to the more scientifically minded, and also because they lead me to greater truths. I can leave the numbers behind like training wheels. So let's get into some numbers. 70% of the world is covered with water. 2.5 of that water is fresh water. In other words, water that we can use for drinking, for um, our own health and hydration. 1% of that 2.5% is accessible. Um, water that we can reach in some way. 90% of that 2.5%. Of the 1%. Huh? 90% of the 1%. Oh, really? I think so, so. But that's not accessible. I'm not sure. But 90%, well, <laughs> we'll uh, look into this more and feel free to do your own homework, but 90% either of the 2.5% that's fresh water or the 1% that's accessible is actually in Antarctica. So 90%, um, nine gallons out of every 10 gallons is stored up, frozen up in Antarctica, mm -hmm. and it's melting. So, you know, I, I'm reading all this this information, and as these glaciers, Antarctica melts, it's becoming non-fresh water. Because what mm -hmm. happens when it melts, it goes into the ocean. And um, I think it was in a Tom Brown class where he points out that you can take a gallon of drinking water, and if you put one drop of poisonous um, substance, oil in it, it is now polluted water. So for it to be diluted into the ocean, into salt water, it becomes non-fresh water. Um, it changes its whole personality. 30% of that is in the ground, um, and 40% of fresh water in the U.S. is used for agriculture. Yeah. So that was a lot of numbers. Um, that might have been a little bit confusing, but what, what are we talking about here? Let's see, Teresa. If 1% of the 2.5% of fresh water is accessible, mm -hmm. and 90% of that... No, no, no. Let's not do that. Let's not get into math. <laughs> 90%, I'm going to try it. 90% oh of that is in Antarctica. We're talking about one-tenth of 1% 1 that is actually we are able to get. 30% of that is in the ground, which is okay because we dig wells and everything. We pull it out of the ground okay as far as our usage. <laughs> and in the U.S., 40% of that available one-tenth of a percent of water, <laughs> we're using in it for agriculture. Now, that might not impress you at first, but consider why we have to use it for agriculture. It's already raining. There's plants that are already suited to specific habitats that are edible. When you think about the foragers, the hunter-gatherers. So when we use it for agriculture, we are using it to irrigate plants that don't want to be there. We're changing the natural flow so we can irrigate plants that otherwise would not thrive in this habitat. 
um, it's sort of a discordant situation we're creating and we're feeding with this water. So we need that to create our food the way we're living. 65% um, of it is used for agriculture in China. So usually, you know, when I see numbers, the U.S. always has the highest numbers of, of taking and, and manipulation, but turns out China has more. And many other cultures around the world use up to 90% of their water, their fresh water, available water, from that small amount of water that is fresh water that we can get for agriculture. Now, in terms of Daniel Quinn and the totalitarian agriculture and many other people who say that the underpinning fuel of our society, our culture, is agriculture, consider the water alone that's used to feed this way of growing food that feeds an expanding, exploding population that in turn needs more food, needs more water. <laughs> it's a positive um, feedback loop. It's something that, you know, you feed one side and that side feeds the other, which feeds the other, which feeds the other. It's a positive, not as in a good thing, as in a growing thing. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's just a little window into water right there with the, uh, the percentages. And we were listening to the radio this morning and World News. There was a story about how France was wanting to change centuries-old uh, legislation that would allow them to irrigate their orchards or their vineyards of grapes for the wine that they produce because it's getting drier there. And for centuries, they haven't allowed irrigation probably because it wasn't needed or it was balanced. They weren't trying to overproduce the grapes and overproduce the wine because of greed. And I just mentioned to Gumby, and here we are sitting in the United States and we pull wine out of the dumpster. Now, it might not be French wine, but we pull all sorts of agriculture. It's got French names on it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we pull all sorts of agricultural products out of the dumpster. And here we're using our precious water supply and justifying it by saying, oh, you know, it's water that we need to produce food. But we're producing so much food, it's getting thrown out. Mm -hmm. And... Oh, I guess man. I I guess that goes to saying like why do we not respect water? And here are some things that are very respectable properties of water. I got your segue. <laughs> Thank you for that segue, Teresa. Uh -huh. um, and you know, to, before I leave that topic of uh, how we're treating water for our agriculture, just consider any other creature. Um, its population is matched by the carrying capacity of the land to sustain it with natural resources. We are changing the game, changing the rules of that when we rechannel water for agriculture. We're creating planting plants here that don't belong there mm -hmm. um, at the expense of other plants. Let's not forget that there's no blank slates on earth. Earth, when it can shove life into any little corner, that's what it does. Earth loves life. So whenever we plant crops, something was already there. Something had to make way. And these crops are so unnaturalized to that area, we then need to rechannel. We need to redirect whole rivers and streams to feed these crops. Um, so to go back to how special water is, I've heard that water is life. And, you know, I had no problem with that, but I realized I didn't really understand what that meant. And then I started hearing, like, when we look for life on other planets, one of the big things that gives us a clue, like, oh, we should look closer, there could be life here, is the presence of water in some form, particularly liquid form. So 
I looked up some of the special properties of water, and again, you know, this is from a scientific perspective. An animist perspective doesn't need, you know, idle facts and numbers. An animist perspective understands the mystical magic of water intuitively. But the scientific perspective, these are unique things about water. It's got a uniquely slow boiling and freezing point. In other words, most of the other liquids that we might find in the universe will freeze and boil quicker. So the effect that has on a planet, our planet for instance, is it moderates temperature. As the sun is doing its impactful things, you know, this influence, this radiation, this heat, and then we go, we turn away from the sun and we're facing the coldness of space. Water is a hugely important factor in moderating that temperature so things that are used to warm weather don't just freeze to death and things that are used to cold weather don't just burn up. Um, that's one of the ways water sustains life. Another unique thing about water is it's a universal solvent, which means that pretty much anything put in water long enough will dissolve, even more than sulfuric acid. Um, it will dissolve more things than sulfuric acid given time. Now, that in itself might not lend um, itself to the creation of life, but if you think about how that forges paths in the earth, how it makes canyons, mm -hmm. how it dissolves rocks, um, water is the ultimate sculptor of our planet, the shape of our planet. And though water being a universal solvent in itself might not support life, if you think about the indirect consequences, how that shapes topography, Anybody who studies botany understands how important topography is, how many plants will pick a sun, a uh, south-facing slope versus a north-facing slope, for instance. And then everything's dependent on the plants. Think of the food pyramid. Um, water, also one of the unique things about it, and we're getting into chemistry here, and I don't even try to have an understanding of chemistry. I just don't, my mind does not wrap around when I start seeing all these little symbols and numbers and little letters. But ice floating on top of water is a very unique situation. Most things, if you find a liquid form of it in the universe and then you find a solid form, the solid form will be heavier. It will sink to the bottom. Water, when it takes on a solid form uniquely, can float on its liquid form. Mm -hmm. Think about the implications of the life in water. For instance, a lake. We can ski, we can go uh, skiing and play on top of the ice on a lake. We can fall through if the water, if the ice is thin enough and even drown. And what that does for the wildlife is it can survive underneath the frozen water. It's frozen on top, but the fish, the things that live there can, you know, go into the mud. They can still be alive and swimming around. If it froze from the bottom up, it would kill all things in the water. And water is one of the basic um beginning parts of our food chains. So if we killed all the things in the water, everything else would die off. Everything is linked to the water. So that's another unique property of water that, in, that enables life. Water is life. Am I missing anything? Let's see. Let's see. Yeah, so some other unrelated facts about, you know, what we're doing with the water. Unsafe water kills 200 children every hour. Um, and more than 25% of bottled water is actually from taps. So I've heard it said that we're not actually buying water when we buy water. We're buying plastic bottles. <laughs> and think about that. 25%. You buy four bottles of water from different companies. The odds are that one of them was just somebody turning on a faucet. The same tap water you could have gotten. Um, you really are feeding the plastic industry. It's not about clean water, per se. Um, 
yeah. So, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, well, I'll just I'll just say briefly. Unsafe water doesn't just kill children; it can also kill adults. I had a friend in Nepal. Ooh. Have you been in Nepal? Yes, I actually have. Wow. And um, he he actually got double kidney failure. He was on death's doorstep because of some dirty water that he drank. Um, luckily he was able to get a kidney transplant and he's alive now. Um, but yeah, that, that, it, that could happen to me. That could have happened to me when I went over there. I actually did get sick from the water just from brushing my teeth one time. And I do want to say that we did not invent all water illnesses and an illness isn't necessarily something that shouldn't be there. It's something that affects us negatively, but we certainly have, Tip the balance. Mm, exacerbated. Yeah, and not only by what we've done to the water, but by the places that we've decided that we should be, that maybe nature is telling us this isn't the place for human beings. Mm. Other things can use this water, but you get sick when you use it. And that, that I guess, leads to the state of water in the world. Just like a doctor can check your blood to determine your health, we can check water for the health of ourselves and the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like if you just look at your local stream and can tell the health of the water, you look at turbidity and the creatures that live in the water, um, pH, balance, things like that, you can have a pretty good gauge of the health of the entire forest. And likewise, if you look at the world as a whole, how we're doing with the water, that 70% of water that's covering the globe, you can have a pretty good idea of how we're doing as a planet. And let's not forget, we're not little creatures living on a planet. When we talk about the planet, again, that, that idea of self, we are talking about ourselves. Yeah, and if you've been listening in, you know, we went around the country um, a couple of months ago, and we encountered problems with the blue-green algal or algae blooms, um, even in the Great Lakes. I thought this was just going to be a problem, not like it's any better, but I thought it was just going to be a problem in the warmer weather areas. But it turns out that even up north, where it was a little cooler, but not even by much because of the temperature changes all over the place, that we couldn't even go to the lake because we were afraid our dog was going to get water on his paws and become ill or possibly die. Um, and it isn't that humans created the blue-green algae that's a cyanotoxin, but again, they created an imbalance by using so many fertilizers for agriculture, and then the runoff into the lakes and, well, the rivers and streams all created the, uh, exacerbated the problem. Yeah, and this is the Great Lakes. Um, one of the reasons the Great Lakes are so affected, as I was reading, is they are um, la- large parts of it are shallow. And there's this is happening in Minnesota. This is happening in North Carolina. This is happening in parts further out west in the United States. And I, I think this is happening in other parts of the world, too. And if that doesn't piss you off, that this beautiful lake that we put on postcards, that we treat as a tourist attraction, is actually in reality so dangerous that you are told not to let your dog get its feet wet because if it licks its paws, it could have such a bad reaction it could die. I, I, I don't even know what to say to that. It, it pisses me off so much. And this is one of those things that we are directly responsible for. The blue-green algae, we didn't invent that. That's a natural thing. And in balance, it's not a bad thing. It's con- it was um, Many scientists consider it one of the first life forms and it is the bottom of a huge food chain. If the blue-green algae went away, mm-hmm. that would be 
complete environmental collapse. <laughs> so we don't want to get rid of the blue-green algae. But the thing that feeds blue-green algae is nitrogens and phosphates. And what do you think is happening to put an excess of nitrogens and phosphates into these bodies of water? Well, I'll tell you, as we were riding around the Great Lakes, especially northern New York, we realized we were in agriculture country for miles and miles Everywhere. and miles. So all this freaking runoff, and again, we're rechanneling the water to irrigate food that doesn't belong there. And to top that off, because of course that's not enough for this exploding population that is entitled to anything, we're putting chemicals on it, nitrogens, excess things that of course anything that we put in the air and the water goes into the bodies of water. It all goes there. That's why it is such a gauge of health of the planet. And that just pissed me off so much. My mom told me to go check out Lake Champlain. She grew up around there, has great memories of there. And we go there and can't even go there. Can't, I can't even throw a ball in the, the lake for my dog to fetch. Yeah, there were reports. I was trying to understand that it was like you needed a Ph.D. Um, to understand where it may be safe um, but yeah, there were just so many alerts about Lake Champlain that was like moderate risk or high risk or low risk. What does that even mean, low risk? I mean, does that mean it's okay or does that mean that you shouldn't go? So we just bypassed the Great Lakes and Lake Champlain altogether. And it was really sad. Um, another, another thing that's happening and has been happening for some time is acid rain. And I remember we went to Mount Mitchell in North Carolina off of the Blue Ridge Parkway. There was a, a little like kiosk or table that was talking about acid rain. And that was, I mean, I had heard of acid rain before, but I guess the way they cover it in school is just so fast or maybe my memory is just really bad. I didn't understand that it happens not even so much in rain, but in the clouds that cover the high forests, like the um, high elevation forests, it can create an environment where the trees can no longer take up the nutrients they need. And so they start to just choke. They start to die off. Gumby, you want to add to that? Well, as I was researching this, um, it turns out that this was a concern as far back as the 17th century. Um, it really got the public awareness in the 1970s. And what acid rain is, is sulfur dioxides and nitrogen oxides. Um, it's usually not directly harmful to humans, but it is indirectly harmful to humans because of the things Teresa was talking about that it does to the environment. And also, it affects our health, particularly heart and lung problems over time. So, you know, that could be another factor. And this is one of the things I thought we had gotten better at. You know, like when they first started identifying this acid rain back Way back, you know, in the 17th century, one of the answers was the big smokestacks. <laughs> and indeed, the towns saw an improvement. But what they realized was happening over time is the small smokes, the, the tall smokestacks just allowed it to travel further. So now you're <laughs> affecting other places that might not even have the industrial um, things going on that, that create this problem. But since the planet is connected, of course, it all comes back around. Mm -hmm. Um and I thought we'd gotten better at this, but as I'm researching, it turns out that we just don't talk about it anymore. There's so many problems that you can kind of have the feeling of like, oh, well, I guess that's one thing. At least we fixed. We fixed that. But you start digging into it, and you realize that 
people just don't talk about it anymore. It's old news. Nobody could figure out how to fix it. They tried a few things. It didn't work. Let's move on. And let's move on because now there's more urgent problems because the way we're living has not changed and it's creating more and more problems exponentially. Yeah, and it just reminded me when you said smokestacks, how they were talking about those scrubber things that could be put on the smokestacks. And I don't even think those helped very much. Yeah, I didn't. I don't know about those. But they also have, um, more recently in the news, they've talked about the credits or the like uh, carbon neutral footprint type thing where businesses can whatever, do something else, like plant trees. Oh, my God. What a bunch of political bull crap that is. (laughs) Programs, programs. They solve everything, just like science. Like, you can murder this person, but, you know, you got to feed an extra meal to this other person. Let's balance it out. (laughs) What are some other things that have been happening with our water? Well, you know, let's bring it home. Um, You know, you might feel like, God, I hate those corporations. They're acid rain they're putting out there. uh, those those big commercial farmers, like I'm an organic farmer, but God, they're just pumping all this stuff into the water. So let's bring it right to our household habits, because there's many things that we do that we take for granted nowadays that got sold to us. Very recently in human history, we did not need these things, and now they're so invisible that we just feel like we need them. We don't even question them. Um, you might have heard of gray water and black water. Black water is the water in your home that you have taken a crap in. So that is considered completely polluted water. It's not useful for anything. Um, The best we do is try to feed it into a septic system to minimize the harms. It seeps back into the ground. um, Or it goes into city sewer systems where they treat it with chemicals and supposedly it's uh, nullified. It's not harmful anymore. Who knows how true that really is, but that water, as it's coming out of your house, is not useful for anything. If you spray it on crops, it's dangerous. And then there's the gray water. That is the stuff from your washing machine, the stuff you wash your dishes with, the stuff that you're buying all these products from the store, these chemicals, and using shampoo and shampoo, soap, um, stuff that you could retreat it. And if you set yourself up for some of these systems, you can actually like irrigate gardens and that could be used, gray water. But consider the lifestyle that we even have to find something to do with this water. It's, it's just taken as a given that you're going to have black water and gray water. We've mentioned before in Fight for the Right to Potty, um, is it Peter Jenkins? No, Jenkins. No, I can't remember. Can't remember his name, but his last name is Jenkins, and he wrote the Humanor Handbook. And we actually built, when we still had a trailer we lived in, a compost toilet. You can take a crap. Fairly comfortable, comfortably. You could even build one of these inside, so absolutely comfortably, Mm -hmm. and not be crapping in our limited, shrinking, fresh water supply. Oh my God, that was the fact that we're all taught to take a big old hoary shit (laughs) in our fresh water supply, as we're also being told by our scientists. You know, listen to the scientists that we're in this alarming situation where water is in trouble, and you're still. Like, how soon after that you listen to this podcast? Going to take another ship, shit in our fresh water. Mm-hmm. There are alternatives, and they are not so difficult to do. Um, even taking a crap in a hole in the ground, burying it, is not a, uh, a bad alternative. Um, things get tricky when you start living in mass loads of people, when you start having a, what am I trying to say? 
there's a lot of people living together, like a city. Yeah. Cities are problematic. Uh, we should do a whole podcast on the problems of a city. But, yeah, if you get, like, a whole bunch of people living on top of each other and they're all taking a crap everywhere, yeah, then you've got sanitation nightmare issues. But if your population is sustainable with the landscape, again, carrying capacity, instead of freaking changing rivers to irrigate crops that didn't belong there, you can take a crap anywhere. Crapping is not a problem. It's just taking a crap. Yeah, it's like, so, did you ever wonder what we did before there were toilets? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so consider that, your own personal impact on this water, um, the sacred water, this water that even our scientists, our dead-eyed scientists that don't talk about things being sacred, call life. Water is life. <clears throat> Other water pollution, you know, we've got mining, all these minerals that are pulled out of the ground, a lot of them are processed with water. And once the water is used for the mining, it's often very detrimental polluted water. There's story after story that you can find of whole towns that were just poisoned because they were near places where mining was the big um, commercial interest. Mm. And this is not uncommon at all. It's still happening. There's still uh, lakes and reservoirs of this water that was used to mine gold, mine lead, mine you name it. Um, that are just sitting there, that are like these cesspools of poison, and they still don't know what to do with them. We've got oil spills. Um, This has not gotten solved. Uh, The Dakota Pipeline, we were just reading about, you know, there was all these protests about stopping the Dakota Pipeline. (laughs) What, two years into it, there's already been like at least one major oil spill from this thing? Mm -hmm. And then you you, you think about the oceans, there's still oil leaking into the oceans, um, actively right now by the actions of our government, of our way of life, this this oil-based economy. Um, sonar, you know, we're talking a lot about chemicals and substances. Sonar is something that is highly controversial. There's a lot of things that live in the ocean that have a different relationship with sound than we do, particularly whales, which are already endangered and threatened. Uh, many of the species. Sonar is really throwing them off. We're, we're using sonar in the defense of our country, which many of us know by now is the defense of our economy. It's a commercial interest. So we're valuing our own commercial interest over the life of these creatures that have been our relatives since the dawn of time and before. Um, mm, yeah. So fracking, you know, we're using water to pull things out of the the earth. Um, Flint, Michigan, you know, really famous case right there. And uh, check out Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 11.9 if you want to see the Obama administrations, you know, Democrats, they're supposed to be good for the environment, right? You watch uh, Obama and see how good he is for the environment as he takes a sip of water, insists on a sip of water that he barely touches to his lips um, as he's addressing the people of Flint that have asked him for help for their water crisis just to, what am I saying, devalue their argument? Oh, yeah. yeah. Just to prove, like, no, it's safe. And by the way, the Flint water crisis continues. Yeah, and the whole reason they had, they did have water that was fresh, drinkable water. I forget what the name of the river was, but they decided that the only entity that was going mm-hmm. to be able to use that fresh water was the like General Motors car plant. Yeah, so the commercial interest took precedent and the poor people of Flint still were forced to drink the polluted water. And the reason was because the other water that they were forcing the people of Flint, Michigan to drink 
was corroding the car parts. <laughs> yeah, you, you look at the plastics that are floating. You know, there's this guy from, I forget what country he's in. He's trying to invent something to like kind of round up the Finland plastic. You know, to me, I don't know. It's like instead of trying to uh, curb the problem, it seems like we need to take drastic steps to stop it at its source. So we got islands of plastic that are forming. And we all know, like, if you grew up in the 80s, you saw the commercials about what those little, like, soda ring things. That, the six-pack The six-packs, what they do to wildlife. We got all the dumping. You know, there's, like, all kinds of illegal dumping in the ocean because what a great place to hide it, including <laughs> toxic stuff. This is still happening. Yeah, when the United States ships their, whatever, refuse to other countries, especially China, I mean, there's only so many places that China can put it, and I don't know all the details of it, but I have heard reports that China has been dumping a lot of the United States garbage into the ocean. And we're taught to vote for the right person, to get the right regulations passed. Well, guess what? These regulations are getting passed. They've been getting passed since the environmental uh, alarm first got sounded with Rachel Carson. Most of the regulations that the uh, environmental movement had have wanted passed have been passed, and they have not fixed the problem. You start digging, and all these things are still happening. They find ways to compromise and bypass these things. It doesn't work. We don't get to live this way and just pass a regulation and feel all nice and good about it like we fixed it. It's not getting fixed. The dumping is still happening. Commercial fishing. Um, I actually, in 98... Hitchhiked up to Alaska and worked on a fishing boat for the season. And oh my God, I'll never forget what it looked like to see the whole horizon full of fishing boats, pursainers. That each one of those fishing boats represents a huge net, way bigger than the fishing boat. It's like this whole wall of net scraping the ocean. And anything that wasn't salmon, that wasn't the, the, the stuff they were trying to catch to make money, they killed. I saw people tear out gills of fish, especially sharks that they thought competed with them. Um... Many of these other things that got caught in the net and just died because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. The fishermen couldn't make money off of them, but yeah, just throw them back. It was kind of it was considered a uh, what would I say? Maybe a casualty of war. Mm-hmm. Um, the war we collateral are, damage. Collateral damage. That's a good <laughs> word for it. And of course, there's the Great Barrier Reef. Um, we've heard about this dying and. You know, there's a whole ecosystem dependent on that, and every ecosystem is interlinked. So it's not just where the Great Barrier Reef is. Um, this is another symptom. Keep in mind what Teresa said earlier. If you want to check the health of the planet, be the doctor. The doctor takes your blood and sees what's happening with your blood. We're talking about the lifeblood of Mother Earth, and this is what we're doing to it, and this is what it's looking like right now. When we were doing summer camps this past summer, we occasionally, you know, we'd have little side conversations with the kids, and this one little girl was telling me that she wanted to be a marine biologist, and she in particular wanted to study the Great Barrier Reef. And I didn't want to burst her bubble, but I did want to have an honest conversation with her about, well, what is she doing now to make sure that that Great Barrier Reef is still there for when she grows up and wants to study it? I kind of depressed her that day. (laughs) Yeah. And glaciers, you know, uh, President Taft created Glacier National Park in Montana in 1910. There were 150 glaciers there. 150. Now, if you want to consider what the climate is doing, consider the fact that from then, 1910, 150 glaciers, now there are 30. 
in Glacier National Park. And the size of them is drastically diminished. I mean, I went there and I couldn't barely tell what I was looking at. I was like, is that supposed to be a glacier? It just kind of looks like a sad little pile of ice. That's... And once again, a reminder what that means. When glaciers melt, the, the oceans rise. So that's more flooding. This is water that is not usable for us, not for drinking. This is salt water. And this is 90% of our fresh water on this planet that's locked up in the glaciers that has now become part of the ocean. It's too salinated. Is that the word? Saline? Mm, sounds good. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. Mm -hmm. Too full of salt, in other words, for mm -hmm. us to drink. So that's what it means when you hear that these glaciers are disappearing as far as just the human interest side of that. Yeah, and like Gumby mentioned, the flooding... With a warmer atmosphere, it the atmosphere holds and dumps more water. And this is a three, what are we trying to say here? It's an increased three times, it will increase by three times over the next century. There's going to be wetter hurricanes, storm surges that are breaking dams like we saw in Hurricane Katrina especially, um, but also in North Carolina here in the U.S. Yeah, so this added like three, the, all this, um, the warmer atmosphere that's holding more water and dumping more rain, it's not just the rain itself, which in itself is a problem. It's the disturbance it's creating in the atmosphere. So some of this rain comes in in the form of a wet hurricane. Mm -hmm. And then you think about all the usual problems of a hurricane. Yeah, and with the floodwaters from the breaking of dams and levees comes contamination, so like Gumby was talking about the black water and gray water, raw sewage runs through the street and just, I mean, it inundates all of our water supplies. Toxic chemi chemicals, which even if there's not a flood, every time it rains, I see the oil and other fluids from our vehicles just mixing in with the water that becomes our drinking water. Waste sites that are inundated, including factory farms right here in North Carolina, we have We've had a lot of ecological disasters surrounding the massive pig ponds, like the pig shit ponds. And when it floods or when it just there's a natural disaster of some kind that produces a lot of water, it just washes all this pig shit all over the place and it contaminates everything and it stinks. And also when floodwaters recede, it doesn't just go away. It leaves all the bacteria and mold. And so these types of things that are just stuck on the sides of our houses and in our house and just inundates like in rugs and, and all sorts of upholstery, all of the bacteria and mold can cause asthma problems. And it often hits the poor the worst. And with people being poor, they often cannot afford to have flood insurance. Yeah, and there's something to me uh, poetic about floods in particular. Um, I don't, I don't want to see anybody hurt. I don't want to like. I take no pleasure in seeing miserable people, miserable creatures of any kind. And yet, I'm in this kind of paradoxical situation where I really want to see civilization collapse, not because of some sadistic impulse, but because I want to see life have a chance. And the biggest thing I see happening right now that is threatening it is us. This thing that partly is not our fault. We're born into it. We're, we're indoctrinated into it. We're hypnotized every time we flip a switch on something that starts shining a screen and talking to us. But partly it is us. We're making choices we don't have to make. So a flood 
when it brings up all of our crap, it's kind of taking all this crap that we're throwing <laughs> into the environment and trying to ignore and like, la, la, you know, like, I'm a good person. Let's go to Starbucks. <laughs> and a flood brings it right back and says, you want to throw your shit over here? Eat it. Choke on it. <laughs> here so, it is. Back to you. Yeah, I kind of appreciate the uh, the essence of what a flood is. You know, it just brings our shit right back to us. And maybe if that happens enough, we will be forced to wake up and deal with it. I started looking into aquatic life. Um, I know that when I want to recognize the health of a stream, how polluted it is, I can start looking under rocks and seeing little wiggly things. So in the wider sense, the global scale, just the life in the oceans. And I got to tell you, the information was overwhelming. I started reading about jellyfish. I started reading about whales. I started reading about mussels. And I was like, I I can't talk about all this. It's going to take more than one podcast to talk about this alone. There are so many species going extinct or threatened or just horrific diseases are happening to them. I was just reading about sea turtles. And sea stars. Yeah, sea turtles getting uh, these tumors on them. And there was a picture. It was disgusting. And these uh, sea stars that have got this fungal disease that uh, that are disintegrating, they're just dissolving. And the frogs. You just read about that. The frogs, yeah. Again, this fungus, this fungus that they're saying is like the worst pathogenic uh, illness that has ever hit the frog population is just wiping them out, um, worse than anything that we've ever seen. Um, Yeah, so I'll just put it out there that just like the rest of the world, the things that live on the land, the things that live in the ocean are equally dying. Our world is dying, and. I don't really know what else to say about the aquatic life. I mean, that pretty much is it. Everything's dying. So the world um, is getting wetter. The the forecast for the climate change is that the world will get wetter, but the dry places will get drier. So in other words, if you've got a place that's already humid, you know, expect to see more rain, more floods, more of the things we're talking about. If you've got a place that's already a desert, you might think, well, at least it'll be good news for the desert because I've heard the deserts are growing. But no, those places actually get drier. Here's another positive feedback loop. Um, In a desert, the lack of rain suppresses plants and it bakes the ground. It makes it really hard. So that makes it harder for plants to grow. Plants, when they grow, they send roots into the soil, which breaks it up, which makes it hold water better. Without the plants, more water or less water can percolate into the soil. Um, This suppresses rainfall as well. Actually, less rain falls because of less plants, because plants transpire water. This is something I've learned in survival, a way to find water if you can't find it anywhere else. You can actually like trap some of that water that leaves are, are breathing out. Without the plants there, there's less water put in the atmosphere, less clouds are made, less clouds there to drop water back onto the soil. It's a positive feedback loop, so the desert grows. Remember when we were driving through the desert and how that felt, and then when we got back to an area that had trees, it just felt like so good, like your nose wasn't hurting, your, yeah, you didn't have and, like dry skin. And I don't know how much of this has to do with me getting older or how much of this is accurate observation, but I love the desert. I went to the desert in the 90s when I was younger, and it was an enchanting place. This time, I don't know if it's my perspective that's changed or if there's something different about the desert, but it felt dead. It did not feel like a place I wanted to linger. Um, It just had a very different vibe to it. 
And like I said, I'm not trying to get all mystical here because I honestly don't know how much my perspective played a part in that. Um, and of course, with this feedback loop of the drier places, it's lending itself to more wildfires, which we're seeing. Uh, I've heard about wildfires in Australia right now, and of course, the ones that are always happening in California and are getting worse every year and out west. Um, the U.S., the United States, is particularly prone to drought, more than other places in the world, which we've already seen with the Dust Bowl in the 1920s and um, similar events. There, so There were signs in California as we were passing through all the agricultural areas, which is a lot, that were saying that it was a... Uh, Congress created Dust Bowl because they weren't able to, I guess they weren't able to irrigate their crops enough. Yeah. So a lot of these scientific forecasts for where the climate change is uh, taking us, a lot of these wet events are going to be really common all over the globe. A lot of these dry events that we're talking about right now, the droughts, we're probably going to see it more in the United States than many other places. Hmm. And continuing with droughts, um, Warmer temperatures overall in the world, increased water demands because of increased population, because we just can't help ourselves. Um, in 2011, I guess that was the driest year ever for the state of Texas. And in 2012, 81% of the United States was in an abnormal drought. Now, those are, what, eight, nine-year-old <coughs> statistics, but it fluctuates, Um but yeah, there's there's definitely more extreme events happening quicker. So while we can adapt, it's also a matter of like what is it doing to the overall ecosystem? And because of all the droughts, there is a global food shortage, which goes back to increased demands for water and food. And like Gumby said, the wet places, well, he was saying, yeah, you were saying that the wet places were getting wetter and the dry places were getting drier. Mm -hmm. And the, U, the UN says that two-thirds of the world population will be facing water scarcity by 2025. So that's five years away. Yeah, for many reasons. Um, for all the reasons we're talking about, that less fresh water is available as well as an expanding population. So as we're making less water available, we're needing more demands for it because we're also trying to grow crops in deserts. Mm -hmm. There we go with the irrigation. So it's just, it's an ugly, ugly feedback cycle. And like I mentioned, it isn't so much that the earth is supposed to remain constant. So there's all this talk about whether it's global warming, whether it's climate change, whether it's natural, whether it's, you know, exacerbated by man. But regardless of your stance regarding climate change, we just wanted to share with you, switching gears here, some ways that you can prepare for changes that are going to be happening, well, maybe starting today, not just five years from now. Um, and whether it's for your like backpacking trip or if it's for a way that you can eventually move into a more off-grid lifestyle. So Gumby, do you want to share some of the uh, tips and tricks? Yeah, but before I completely leave where we were, um, I just want to add that we are not experts in climate change or water or anything for that matter. Thank what goodness. we are are people <laughs> who live on this planet and give a shit. We are explorers and seekers. So we are just trying to dig into this information to get conversations started. So as Teresa was saying, 
Um, you know, we're shifting gears, and here's some ways that might help you get water, especially if you um, find yourself in a wilderness survival situation or if society collapses and that those handy uh, pipes that have <laughs> trained us to be helpless and c- completely clueless about wild water are no longer serving us anymore. Now it's up to us to find and treat safe drinking water. So let's start with a stream. Um, many of us, if you're fortunate, you live near some kind of stream, some kind of river, If you're not, you might want to find some kind of stream or some kind of river um, when it all starts breaking down and you can't count on plumbing anymore. The best way to start looking for your cleanest water in a river or stream um, is start going upstream. So determine which way the river is flowing and then start following it upstream. Before long, you're going to see a fork. You know, rivers um, collect streams that feed into it. So you're going to see a smaller stream. Always take the smaller fork. Follow that smaller fork. Maybe it'll fork again. Keep taking the smaller fork. This is a good way to find a source. Um, a source, often, when I when I first started looking for this, I was picturing like Irish Spring commercials. I thought I'd find some like <laughs> bubbling. bubbling magic place where this ray of sunshine was, you know, coming and shining right there. And a deer would look up and bound off into the woods as I took my turn next to the spring. And daisy petals would fall down from the sky. <laughs> and I'm not saying that's not out there, but often what you find is something that just looks kind of like muddy. It's, it's <laughs> sort of unimpressive. But still, that will be your cleanest water. Look around. Are you right at the base of a factory? Even if you are, um, you know, that might not be a good source. But if you look around and you're far in the woods, there's no nothing that gets you suspicious that's probably your best bet for collecting drinking water. And you can filter it if the dirt bothers you. Um, but even dirty, you know, sticking your face right in it and <laughs> slurping it up, <laughs> you're probably going to be better off than getting it from the main body of the river because mm-hmm. that river is carrying all these untold things from God knows where. Um, it, like I said, everything we do goes back to the water, the veins of Mother Earth. Um also, another good thing to know about streams that's pretty common knowledge, every Boy Scout should know this, um, <laughs> is if you get lost in the woods, start going downhill. Keep going downhill till you find water. Not only is water going to help you stay alive because it's just a necessary thing, and if you need to stay out there longer, you can build a shelter near it, and there's your water source. You only want to go a few days without water, if that, but start following it downstream. It will very often lead, eventually, to human habitation, help. So this is not so much a useful thing when society collapses, but if you find yourself lost in the woods right now, it's a really good thing to know. And uh, I've been lost a couple times and actually put this to the test, and it's true. Um, The river, because of the nature of water, it will feed into a larger river, which will feed into a larger river, which eventually feeds into a lake or ocean, and this is where people want to be. We instinctively, even in our culture that believes itself so separate from nature, we instinctively feel this draw for water. You look at our biggest cities, they're right next to the coast. Mm -hmm. You look at our biggest, some of our biggest towns are right next to huge lakes. Um, We want to be near water. There's a part of us that remembers our true nature. Um, If I talk to a industrialist, they'd say, oh, it's that, it's none of that hippie crap. It's water makes money. You know, it's a very (laughs) useful thing and it's scenic. It's where the ports are. Yeah. But what do we mean by scenic? You ever consider why we think water is so beautiful? Maybe there's something deeper going on there. Hmm. Um, but yeah, remember if you're lost, find that river, follow downstream, upstream for cleaner water to drink, downstream to get out of the woods. (laughs) And the two main dangers, when we talk about why can't you just find any water and drink, 
the two main things we're talking about, um, as I brought up in Back to Reality, um, are pollution, so direct chemicals, direct poisonous stuff that gets dumped in the water, and um, what am I trying to say? Protozoa, little microscopic things that live there that can make us sick. It's not that they don't belong there, but often they've been introduced in places they weren't before. Um, or you might be in a place you've never been before that, you know, that's what lives there. It's not water that's really for us. Um, and are we going to go into, did you want to talk more about what to do about those specific things, or should I, should I talk about how to treat them now, Teresa? Um, well, I was going to mention water indicators and then filtering, and then you were going to do... Yeah, go All for right. it. Okay, so I was really excited when Gumby showed me these... Um, different aquatic life, uh, are they in, they're all invertebrates or? Yes, I believe so. So you can also call them water indicators. And one of the most special ones to me is it's a pouch snail, right? Mm -hmm. And there's two different kinds. One, if you hold the tip of the shell up, Oh, if you're talking about both of them, one is a gilled snail. Oh, okay. One is a pouch snail. Okay, so the one on the with the opening, if you hold the tip of the shell. I haven't even bothered memorizing the names because I, I go with Tom Brown on this one, know the spirit before you know the name. So hmm. if I know what it looks like and um, the message it's giving me, I don't care if some scientist somewhere calls it a pouch or a gilled snail. Well, I've, I've shared this water indicator sheet on our Facebook page, and we actually, I have the one that Gumby showed me first, so I'll try to take pictures of that and post it with the podcast. But take my word for it, there's one that has an opening on the left and one that has an opening on the right, and if it's on the right, that's the right one for really good water. Well, they're both indicators of... Uh cleaner water. It's just that there are different levels, level one, level two, level three. Level one is the most sensitive. So if I hold up the snail, it's kind of ice cream cone shaped and where the point is facing the sky. And I look at what side the hole is when I face it towards me, it'll either be on the left or the right. The right one is the most sensitive. So if I see a lot of those, I'm really encouraged. If I see the other one that's facing the left, it's still an encouraging sign. It's just a little more tolerant of mm -hmm. pollution. So... Yeah, I think once you get to like level three water indicators, it says on the sheet like it's not. It could there could be things in there. There could be pollutions in there. But, but still, the fact that it's on the sheet means it's somewhat sensitive. Mm -hmm. That's like, why you don't see minnows and like, things like that. They could be in really polluted water. Like for example, another one. My another one of my favorites. I really love water indicators. I hate that I'm calling it that, but I love crayfish. Mm -hmm. They have such personalities. And they're so easy to identify. Like, I, we can talk about these snails, and you might be like, oh, but mm. we talk about a crayfish, you know. You know what we're talking about. Yeah, little, little lobster-looking things. And something else that I didn't really clue into naturally, although I think I was just kind of overwhelmed, is the vegetation around water. So if there's a lot of dead vegetation, you might be like, I don't know what's going on here. Maybe there's something in the environment that I should be worried about. Yeah, and these both address pollution, not mm -hmm. the little microscopic protozoa. So they could be full in the water, and it could give you a water illness, and you could still see plenty of water indicators and uh, great-looking vegetation. But if you see dead vegetation, um, that could be a sign of pollution, man-made pollution, uh, lack of water indicators. And if you can't remember the different ones, just start looking under rocks. If you see a lot of little wiggly stuff, that can be an encouraging sign that the pollution isn't bad because those wiggly things are often the um, larval forms 
of insects that are going to grow up and live around the water, and they're very sensitive when they're babies, so bad chemicals um, would probably kill them off. Um, another thing about the vegetation is that's also something you want to look out for. So say I'm looking for a source, I'm going upstream, and I see a place with a lot of lush vegetation. That's not ideal, because you know what else likes lush, lush vegetation? Mm. Rodents, things like that, that could poop in the water mm. and spread those protozoas that could make me sick. Mm. So an ideal source would be coming out of, like, rocks. I'm not seeing dead vegetation, but I'm also not seeing lush vegetation. Mm. Sort of a rocky place, because that makes rodents feel exposed. They're more likely to go find a place that they have more cover, and that's another encouraging sign that even better, it's probably cleaner water. Yeah, look for poop if you can. <laughs> it's really hard to spot poop in the water, but the effects <laughs> no, of the poop are going to I guess it. I meant like um, sometimes we've seen like raccoon scat and stuff like that. So you might want to pass up that area for collecting water. But that is, yeah, so when we talk about water indicators and uh, vegetation, it could indicate pollution in the water. And also, this next thing I'm going to talk to you about is not getting rid of the protozoa. It's mainly just kind of helping a little bit with clearing the water. So once you find your source that you want to collect water from, you may decide that you want to filter it a little bit. Maybe it is that muddy source that Gumby was talking about. You can use something like a bandana or a piece of clothing to just um, slowly pour the water through to collect the, the mud and silt or sand. Um, you can also, and Gumby, you can maybe speak more to this. I haven't done it. You can also look for things like sand, um, use of charcoal or grass to pour the water through so that it not only takes out the larger pieces of like dirt and soot and sand, but also it might help improve the flavor. Well, I will say that a lot of these water things, I'm more proud of my water skills than about any other like shelter, fire, and food because I was taught almost verbatim how to do the shelter, fire, food. Water, it's like a lot of the survival instructors were scared to even try this. Like they didn't have faith in the water skills themselves. So I had to really dig and research on my own. Um, what we're talking about is largely a compilation of my own research. So I feel more uh, personally invested. Um, if you want to talk about that. Filters. I'm not a big fan of filters. I've learned – this is something that gets taught in a lot of survival classes. And with my experimentation – I don't know. It's just to me like maybe pretties up the water a little bit, but doesn't do anything that gives me confidence that I'm actually making the water better to drink in any meaningful way. Um, Teresa's alluding to like there's this trick that you can take a two liter plastic bottle, cut off the bottom, turn it upside down so you've got the little like funnel shape and then layer it like put maybe some dry grass, maybe some sand on top of that. Maybe some crushed charcoal from your fire on top of that and layer it a few times like a lasagna. Then you can pour water through and for a little bit it's going to be black when it comes out because the charcoal is going to wash through. But then it'll be very clear. So that's an, a good way to do a water filter. You can also use a hollow log, which I've never done because I've always found a two-liter bottle or something like that. Um, and when I do filter water, I often just use a bandana now because, like I said, I'm not a big filter guy. So I'll just pour water through a bandana for a little extra, I don't know, filtering, cleanliness. And then I do something like boil it, you know, that's really, I think, is going to help me. Yeah, because that's um, going to address the protozoa. Yeah, and there, you can use any kind of clothing. Um, you know, you'll see the difference between thicker clothing and thinner clothing as far as, like, how much you have to, like, change your spot because it'll get clogged up. I've also seen people make tripods with, like, three bandanas so they pour it on the like 
imagine a tripod. You've got a bandana tied to three of the sticks um, horizontally like a table, a little further down, another layer, a little further down, another layer, and people pour their water on the top one. It'll filter and drip to the second one, which will filter and drip to the third one. I've never done that. seems very elaborate, but there's just an idea if you, if you want to pursue filters. Like in a survival situation, it doesn't seem to make that much sense. But if you were out there long term, you might get sick of drinking muddy water that tastes really strongly of iron or something. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the indicators, like we were talking about lush vegetation, water indicators, these are signs that hopefully the water is not extremely polluted. If it's not extremely polluted, now you're dealing with the threat of the protozoa, and this is where boiling comes in. Boiling does not treat pollution. If there's chemicals, if there's dead plants, if there's no signs that this water um, is good or signs that the water could be polluted by some kind of dump, um, boiling's not going to help you at all. Boiling helps the protozoa. And litter is hugely helpful for boiling. Um, You can make containers to boil water, but it's time-consuming, and in those first days especially when you're in a survival situation, you need that time and you need that energy put elsewhere. So if you can find a soda can or a beer bottle or a soda bottle, um, great ways to boil it. Just keep it full. You can put it right on the fire. It'll boil. And as soon as you see fish eyes, those big, you know, shakes the bottle, <laughs> um, big bubbles. As soon as you see that, according to Bear Grills, which is not my favorite survival expert, but according to him, the water's fine. Some people say, like Tom Brown is the other extreme. He says 20 minutes. I've always drank water just as soon as I see the big bubbles. I've yet to have a problem. Yeah. And Tom L. Pell, another guy that has really good advice on actually learned how to use litter um, boiling from his um, videos, The Art of Nothing. But he even recommends like maybe starting to drink a little bit of water that's questionable. He believes you can build up a tolerance. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've actually like drank untreated water in mountain streams you know, that I don't think are probably that bad in that hope. Because if I get really sick, as long as civilization's standing, I can run and get some medicine. Um, I'm going to take less risks when I'm out there, and I can't just run and, you know, call 911. And there's something about, because Gumby's had me do this too, like there'll be this place kind of underneath the root of a tree, and it's very awkward to get there, but if you know any yoga poses, you could probably do it. Mm-hmm. And there is something really amazing that happens when you drink water straight from the land. Yeah, it's very primal. Another way you can boil water uh, for lack of a container is rock boiling. So you can put rocks right in a fire, heat them up till they're red hot. Um, I'd say rocks maybe around the size of your fist and use sticks to fish them out and put them in your water source. So even if you had a puddle, you know, if you dug a puddle, if you found a piece of tarp, I've heard of people even using animal hides um, you can dig a little indentation in the ground, put the questionable water in there, and then heat up your rock super hot. It's best if you have another thing of water because you can dip them real quick to get the ash off because this wa- this, these rocks are going to make your water really ashy and nasty looking, but it'll be safer even if they are nasty looking. Hmm. And then drop them in. And after a while of dropping in these hot rocks, you'll reach a boil. So that's another way to do that if you don't have the handy-dandy litter. And this next one we tried, and I kind of liked it. It was a little bit muddy, but if you let the water settle a little bit and you just pay attention to your surroundings, making sure that you're not by like a farm or factory or a dump or anything, you can actually dig an earth well that's anywhere from 5 to 20 feet away from the water source. So you find a water source, and then you go a little bit away from it. You dig a hole, 
and it fills up with water. And this water has been now filtered by the earth itself. And although it might be a little muddy, you can, if you want, filter it through your piece of clothing or bandana or do something more elaborate. But we drank it, didn't have any problems, and it was pretty good. Yeah, that's what I do when I don't have a fire, um, that earth well. And it's kind of neat, like, using the earth itself as your filter. Um, Let's see, where are we? So, yeah, I wanted to talk about the survival expedition I did at the beach. Um, I went to the Outer Banks, and this was just me by myself, and I was going to be out there three nights. And I thought that I'm at the beach, I'll be able to find something like driftwood, or I'll be able to rig up some kind of shelter, I'll be able to find something to make a fire, and I thought I'd be able to find food on the beach. Water was the part that scared me the most. How am I going to find water? I'm surrounded by the ocean. (laughs) Um, Water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. Exactly. So I looked up a couple things to try. I got out there, and (laughs) it turned out to be exactly the opposite of what I thought would happen. I could not get a shelter to work. I couldn't find the materials, and the wind was, was March, so it was still really cold. The sun baked me during the day. The wind froze me at night. Um, I couldn't get a fire. Oh, no. I couldn't find food. Um, and it turns out, you know, this was a great lesson. I'm glad I, I put myself out there to learn this. I was looking along the outer edge of the Outer Banks. On my way back, I noticed that the beach facing the... Um, like the sound. The mainland was full of all the stuff I was looking for. <laughs> oh. So that's one of the reasons I do survival trips is to learn these hard lessons before I'm in a situation where it might kill me. So now if I'm ever out there again, I know, nope, you know, let's not go to the outer edge. Let's go to the inner edge. Um, but water ended up being the easiest thing. On a beach, and this is fun to experiment with, look, go behind the first layer of dunes um, from the, the water at the beach Look for a low spot. You'll often see like a darker color, like it's a little bit damper and a little heavier vegetation. Start digging down, which is pretty easy because it's sand. Dig, 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 and water will come up. And this water, you might think because it's so close to the beach, it's um, going to be salty. Wow, this, this hole just filled with like pure, fresh water. And I drank it for three days and did not have a problem. Did not have diarrhea or cramps or any of the things that would have happened if I'm drinking water too salty. Um, So, yeah, it was completely the opposite of what I expected. And that's something to try if you're near a beach. I have, like, tried to show somebody, like, at another time and, like, oh, yeah, this is how you do it. Could not get to the water. So it's one of those things, like, don't assume because you heard me say it, you know how to do it. Practice. Because there's so many factors in that. Weather. Uh, which beach you're on, just practice, get out there. And it's fun, man. When you get that water welling up in that little sand well, it's, it's magical. Um, another way that I've heard to treat water, and I've heard they do this in Africa, is if you look at certain bottles, you'll see P-E-T-E. I don't know if you call that peat or pet. I've heard other people say pet. It looks like peat to me. But if you get water in a plastic bottle and it's a bright sunny day and you set it out in the sun all day, like an entire day with the sun beating down on it, I've heard that that treats water. And I've heard that people in Africa will do this and have faith in this method. I can never know like how to testify to this because how do I know the water was bad in the first place? So I've tried this, haven't gotten sick. So I'll say I have not had this go bad on me. But I can't tell you Hmm. for a fact that the water was not okay in the first place. So plastic, 
I don't know if it's the thickness of the plastic, but I've heard specifically P-E-T-E -E, written on the bottom of the bottle. Those are the bottles you want. Sun all day long treats water. And some people might be like cringing because, of course, plastic in the sun might be leaching out chemicals. But I think in a survival situation, and it's unfortunate if people in Africa are doing this and they're accumulating things, but look, our world is under attack by us. And I think if the it's the least of our problems if we drink some water from a plastic bottle here yeah. and there. And I'll just talk about solar stills really briefly because that was the main thing I was taught when I started taking survival classes. Solar still, solar still, dig a hole in the ground, four foot diameter, four feet down. Uh, find a place, a lowland place that gets preferably a lot of sun, but it's also really low, so it's in one of the wetter areas, which <laughs> when you start looking for that, that can be pretty hard to find on its own. I've dug so many freaking solar stills, mm. and then you like have a sheet of plastic. I've heard clear is best, but I've also heard other people say you can use like a black trash bag. Um, I've put it around the hole, put dirt around the edge, put a little rock so it creates a shape like a little funnel. And the, the theory is you can pee in the hole, you can put vegetation of non-poisonous plants in the hole to encourage more moisture, but the moisture, the sun bakes through the plastic, the moisture evaporates, hits the plastic, rides the angle down to that little point that you've created by putting a rock on top and drips into a container you've had down there. You can put a little straw in there, like a long tube of plastic to go into the container to come up so you don't have to dig up the whole thing to drink. I've only had that work twice, and I can't tell you how many uh, solar stills I've dug. This is not my favorite way. There might be an, a, a situation out there that it's like, wow, this is the perfect thing. I've yet to run into it myself. Um, what I have had it good for is when it rains, it becomes a rain catch. <laughs> so that plastic on top fills up with water. And because it's rain, cloud-filtered water, I know it's good water. I can drink that. So I, the, I use it more for a rain catch than an actual working solar still. And the one time I tried it, we dug into the ground, and the ground started filling up with water anyway. So it's basically at that mm -hmm. point an earth well. And the can that I had put in there with the plastic, like Gumby described, um, the can just kind of fell over sideways because the, the water level just kept rising. Yeah, they're problematic at best. So I would just say digging an earth well would probably be easier too. And I think one of those times that I did have at work, I think another teacher was playing a trick on me. I've yet to prove this, but <laughs> the whole gallon was full and it hadn't like, it wasn't a dry situation. I think she went there and like filled up my water thing because she was in my class. No, oh, for Christ. So <laughs> I think it was a practical joke. Are you done with that one? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, oh, actually, no. Um, other ways to really quick to get um, uh, water. water is transpiration. <laughs> so green plants, um, whether they're still on the tree or whether they are, like, picked and put in a plastic bottle, will expire um, water. So you can pick, like, chickweed, for instance, or any kind of plant that you know is not poisonous. Stick it in a plastic bottle, like I was talking about the peat bottles, pretty much any plastic bottle for this, the transpiration. Sit out in the sun, come back later, and you will often find water in the bottle. Not much, but, you know, in certain situations, every, every swallow counts. Like, uh, likewise, you can take plastic, like a sheet of plastic, even a Ziploc bag, get a rubber band or some tie, and put it around the branch. Uh, the end of a branch of some tree you know isn't poisonous. Those leaves are transpire water, and you come back later and you'll see water sitting in the bottom of that bag. So catching the water being transpired by the plants is another emergency source of water that I have had work, but it's not an impressive amount of water. It just kind of 
offsets things, helps you along. And when you were talking about boiling water and um, the peat bottles, I think you were also saying helped with eliminating the waterborne illnesses. Oh, that's all it does. It's mm-hmm. waterborne illnesses. If you have water that's polluted, that, that solar treatment, that doesn't do anything. And There's the, nothing you can let. Let me just say uh, with pollution, there's nothing I know of you can do with that. The only thing you can do is recognize that it's dangerous water and avoid it. There's any, any treatment we're talking about is not treatment for pollution. It's only treatment for microscopic waterborne things that give you illness. Ooh, did you know this? I read that the water that comes out of our tap, okay, and probably some bottled water too, at the city level, they cannot filter out medications that people take and then pee out. It stays in the water supply. So if people are taking hormones, whether they had like a cancer and they have to, you know, do that or some sort of, uh, I don't know, what am I trying to say, like steroids or something, or even um, birth control, those things stay in the water. They can't get it out. I thought that was pretty amazing. And that's, that isn't just like water from a stream. That's the water that's being pumped into people's houses. But what about waterborne illnesses? Like I think there's Giardia. I don't know if there's others that I know. I tried to research this one time and it turns out in our area, Cryptosporidium is kind of the biggest thing. Mm. But um, what I eventually learned is these names aren't so important to me because um, the symptoms and the treatment are pretty much all the same. The symptoms of Giardia, Cryptosporidium, all these different names are basically stomach cramps, diarrhea, nausea. So in other words, things that make you dehydrated. You Mm. can't keep water in your body, which um, when you can't get treatment for that very quickly is an emergency. Mm -hmm. Um, And the treatment can be anything that fights that. Um, I've heard of people using walnut husks, which apparently makes something like iodine that can be used to treat that. I've heard of people eating peppermint leaves. I haven't experimented with either one of these, um, which can supposedly like help treat water even as you drink it. It can uh, kill some of the things that could hurt you. Boiling the water, you know, boil it before you drink it, unless you're trying to do the the Tom L. Bell thing, you know, to try to build up a tolerance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I was only going to add one other thing to that. It seems like more waterborne illnesses, like that was a more recent thing. Maybe, my, like I my, mentioned in Back to Reality, my uncle would go out west, and that was in the 70s. And the rangers, the park rangers, were saying, why are you bringing bottled water in? The water's fine. But then a few years later, they changed their tune. Yeah, and it's recent because it's not like mad scientists are creating these new species and unleashing them on the world, although they might be. Mm. But um, what we're talking about is people going places they haven't been before, as we can all just buy a plane ticket and go anywhere in the world, this is part of the cost of that way of living, that Mm. affluence. Um, We don't necessarily belong everywhere in the world, much less just popping up in one place and being dropped into another place. So we're spreading things that are out of balance, things that have natural checks and balances in their environment, wind up somewhere else in the world, and that ecosystem is not designed to have checks and balances for this thing. So we create an imbalance, and now we have new diseases in places there weren't before. Fortunately, there are some ways to collect water to drink that 
are relatively safe and you don't have to do much work for it. Yeah, these are my favorite ways because they're natural. So we've been talking about a lot of uh, kind of things to do, but nature actually provides quite a few um, boons for this that are already safe. So any way you can catch rain. Um, we talked about acid rain, so it's not necessarily like super healthy, but it's going to be better than outright pollution or outright protozoa because the stuff that can be in acid rain, even if you drink it and it's bad, it's it tends to really be harmful with long-term use. Mm-hmm. It's indirectly harmful to humans. So that might be your best bet in certain situations. But anytime you can catch rain, I call that cloud juice with mm-hmm. the kids. It's filtered water. It's clean water. So if it's about to rain, uh, we've done this actually. We ran out of water during a backpacking trip and set out our tarp, started pouring rain. We found a little roof, a little bridge to get under, and just set out everything that would catch water and replenished all of our water with yep. clean drinking water. Um, yep. It was funny because we took off our clothes and wanted to keep them dry, and we were beside this interstate. <laughs> so we were taking turns running out naked in full view of all these people in the interstate, <laughs> checking our water. But screw them. We had clean water. <laughs> I think you put the rain fly on from my backpack. If somebody's got to look at my hairy ass, that's their problem. <laughs> um, that's their prize. Let's see. There's morning dew, so yeah, especially in cooler weather, you get heavier dew. Wipe that up with a bandana. I've seen Bear Grylls just tie his T-shirt around his ankle and then, like, walk through a field, and then when he gets to the end, wring it off in your, your mouth. But anyway, you can soak it up. Um, there's plenty of good dew, as long as it's not a lawn that chemicals have been sprayed. Always mm. think about your source. If it's just the woods, a place you know is just... You know, nothing's been sprayed on it. Good drinking water. It's such a damn shame that we have to even worry about that. Yeah, the fact that water can even need to be talked about as a survival skill is really a reflection on what we've done to our planet. Um, Once again, we are water, so (laughs) it should be the most natural thing in the world. Um, Let's see. We've got snow and ice. Um, There's... It's debatable whether if you eat snow or ice, whether it brings your body temperature down. Some people say don't do it. Other people say they've done it their whole life and had no problem. I I wouldn't lean against it. I mean, to me, it's moderation. You know, if you're already cold, if that's a problem, if you haven't figured out your heat source and then you start just eating lots and lots of snow, that probably is a bad idea. But if you're pretty warm, your, your clothes are working, maybe you've even got a fire, I don't know. I'd eat snow. And if you're worried about it, you know, if you have a fire, boil it. I've heard of people just sticking a snowball on a stick and having it kind of perched over their <laughs> fire near it with a cup under it, and it just drips into their cup. Um, it takes a lot of snow to make a little bit of water, but, you know, often, especially if you do the, the stick thing, you can be going and doing something else as it's melting. So uh, ready-made, because, of course, snow, what is it? It's rain in a cold form. Uh, clean water. All right, you're done. You mm-hmm. that. And something else that Gumby taught me that I thought was really cool was, I'm going to just say tapping a grapevine, because that's the one thing I did. And instead of cutting a grapevine for water, and it has to be in a certain particular season, but you can tap it and get a really sweet tasting water out of it. It's And if you wait too long to drink it, it almost tastes like it's fermenting. Gumby, you want to add to that? Yeah, I've also done this with birch trees and sycamore trees, but I've had the most luck by far with grapevines. And I've always been taught in survival classes, cut a grapevine. Um, my ex-girlfriend uh, saw me kind of experimenting with the tapping. And by tapping a tree, you don't need a tap. You can just kind of take a stick and whittle it down flat on both sides, sort of like a popsicle stick, 
and bring both sides, both ends to a point. And then you just take your knife and at a slight upward angle, hit, hit it with the butt of your hand. And uh, if it's going to give you water, you'll see water start running down the blade of the knife. Mm-hmm. Um, as quickly as you can, stick the tap in there. Because if water has a chance to make a trail, it will tend to want to follow its own trail. And so if it already has a really good trail down the tree, it won't want to follow your tap. Um, with a grapevine, you might not even need a tap because if it drips down, a lot of times they have a curve in them where they'll start dripping under the vine and you can just set your water bottle there. Um, I've cut a grapevine and tapped one and had the same amount of water come out of similar size grapevines. So I like tapping because the grapevine gets to live. Mm -hmm. I don't need to cut it and kill it. It seems a lot more of a uh, sustainable, respectful way to get water. And this grapevine is doing me such a great service. So I don't want to just thank it by killing it unnecessarily. Um, get to know grapevines. I'm not going to go into a lot of plant ID right here, but Canada moonseed, that's the big one you don't want to confuse it with. I don't know that I've ever even run into a Canada moonseed, but I always check. That's uh, considered the poisonous lookalike for grape. Look it up. Mm. Uh, something to remember, something to keep in mind. Oh, oh one thing about oh, the tapping yes. is it has a sugar content. You can't store it. Mm-hmm. So if you, was this about what you were about to say? No, I already said it, but go ahead. Oh, really? You said that? I said if you wait too long, it, it tastes like it's fermenting. Yeah, it, it goes bad, so don't try to store it. Just drink it, move along, and I've had a grapevine give me a gallon of water, more than a gallon of water, every day for two weeks. But after that, even the water coming right out of the vine without trying to store it tasted bad. Mm. So, go ahead. And that is to say, if you have water and you're in a survival situation, drink it. Don't try to ration it. Um, Gumby has written down that your stomach is your first canteen, so hydrate yourself. Don't think, oh, I'll just have like, you know, a quarter of a cup of water today and then a quarter of a cup tomorrow because you're going to get dehydrated that way. Yeah, rationing food can be a good idea. Rationing water, I've heard, is not a good idea. Uh, There's been stories of hunters that have died with a full canteen. They've died of dehydration. Oh, God. Because one of the first things that gets affected when you're dehydrated is you don't make good decisions. Mm. So you might think like, oh, I don't, I'm not really that thirsty, but then you get more thirsty and now your head's foggy and you're just kind of thinking in this fog like, oh, I need to save water. I need to save water. So remember, like keep your, your stomach, keep that water in your stomach. That's your first canteen. Um, you can drink pee. This is again, debatable. I've, my opinion is that you can drink pee once and after it goes through your body that second time, it's so full of things your body's trying to get rid of. It probably does more harm than good. But I've done this twice where I've been in a survival situation, couldn't find water, drank my pee, let it cool off. I don't mm. know that that was that much better. It tastes like really flat beer. It's not good, but it might be more palatable <laughs> than you would imagine. If you drink Bud Light, you probably won't notice a difference. Indeed. <laughs> and it's not a sustainable source, so it just gets you to the uh, a little bit further down to hopefully find a source of water. Um, signs of dehydration. Strong pee, a strong color, strong smell, uh, like orange, really bright orange, not clear. Dry lips, uh, headache. Bad breath. Teresa, you might be a little dehydrated right now. Um, dizziness or lightheadedness. Fatigue, starting to feel tired. Cramps, constipation, um, bloody anus. Mm, that should have um, been your guitar strum. Bloody anus. That, that would have been a good mm-hmm. one. And uh, the bloody anus actually is something that has happened to me recently. So, uh, you know, if you find a little bit of blood on your toilet paper, um, that can be a really scary thing. But... One of the first things to check is maybe you're not drinking enough water. It might not be actually that scary of a thing happening in your body. Um, and compromised t- 
Turgor. I had to look that up. Well, that's actually why I included that, because I just wanted to say Turgor. Mm -hmm. That is when you pinch your skin, does it have elasticity? So if you pinch your skin and it takes a little while for it to go back down, like the pinch to disappear, Mm. um, that could be a sign of dehydration. So all those things, you know, and of course thirst. So just make sure you're drinking water. Mm -hmm. Um... Do not eat if you haven't found water. Your body is already busy trying to make the most out of what hydration it has available. If you eat, you're giving it another job. So maybe you found a good source of food, but you haven't found water, and you know you're starting to be in danger of not having um, enough hydration. Don't eat. Save the food. What you can do if you find really juicy food is chew it up, swallow the juice, and spit out the pulp. Don't give your body the added job of digestion Hmm. if hydration is already a problem. Hunger is a lot more sustainable for your body for a longer period of time than dehydration. Um, Yeah. So any kind of wet plant that you know is safe, go for it. And one of the last ones, well, I guess the last one that Gumby had written down, and I had to ask him, what exactly do you mean by that, is uh, external hydration and also have travel at night. So if you're... In a survival situation and you're in a very hot area, um, try traveling at night so that you don't sweat so much. Um, trying to just find a place during the day that you can just relax and, and not be exerting yourself. And external hydration. So what the hell does that mean? Gumby? Basically, if you find like a drinking source, you know, and you're in a, in a situation where it's warm weather, you don't have to worry about uh, not dehydration, uh, hypothermia. In addition to drinking water, just get in there, like soak your clothes, dump it on your head. And if you can't drink the water, but you feel like, you know, it's okay for external use, use it. Soak your clothes, soak something, soak it, put Mm. it around your neck, put it around your head. Um, External dehydration helps keep you cool. And because your body is cooler, you don't sweat as much. And because you're not sweating as much, you're not losing as much water. That's awesome. And it reminded me then of something I meant to talk about in our homeless versus houseless podcast, but showering versus going down to the river. And when I say going down to the river, I don't bring soap. Um, So what is the real cost of that hot shower indoors? What are you missing out on? I can tell you so many good memories of going down to a, a creek, a stream, a river, and seeing wildlife, watching the leaves fall in the reflection of the water and just it being so magical. Um, Gumby had a black snake crawl up the side of his body one time, just like really passively. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just, I feel like even though I sometimes do want to take a hot shower, um, I just, yeah, I feel that deep connection so much more when I go to a wild source. And we were talking the other day about, you know, people that, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. We went down to a water source the other day. It was about 36 degrees Fahrenheit, and the water was probably a little bit warmer than that, and we were trying to bathe. Yeah, the weather has turned pretty cold, and Teresa just signed up for uh, Planet Fitness, so she gets the free hot shower there. Um, I'm kind of on the fence. I probably will end up doing it myself, but... um, I hesitate because there's a hidden cost with things. So mm-hmm. uh, the immediate gratification is, yeah, hot shower, cold weather makes sense. 
feels good. I'm going to be cleaner. It's healthier for my body to be cleaner. It's easier for us to be around each other in a van when we don't stink. Um, but I'm robbing myself of this, this, these experiences, like yeah. going down to this water and realizing, oh, it's not as cold as I thought it was. Oh, wow, look how quickly my inner barometer resets. Like the air was freezing cold. I stripped down, got in the water, which was also cold. But then when I came out, the air is no longer cold. You know, it's just like there's these magical powers and forces that that we interact with when we do things the wild way. And so whenever there's a chance to do something that I know is going to feel good, that has benefits, that is uh, technologically dependent or modern, I try to hesitate and think about it again because I know that for every immediate gratification that is really broadcast to me, like, oh, this is good, this is good, do it, this is good. There are other things that don't get talked about that I am turning away from. So just that to consider with water. And it's getting me one step closer to shaving my head so I can just be like Gumby and <laughs> not have to go take a hot shower. Uh, yeah, the effort I take to shave off this wonderful head of hair I have. <laughs> so, and another thing that I want to say about water is it reminds us of our true nature. Like I said in the beginning of this podcast, if we are water, there are many implications to that if you follow that rabbit down the hole. Water is immortal. The same water, the same amount of water, the same exact water that was here at the beginning of our planet is the same water that is here today. And that is the bulk of our body. 66% of our body is that same water, the very same water. So this sense of self that we're taught, that we just... You know, it's, we, we can't even agree in our culture when the sense of self starts. Is it at conception? Is it at birth? You know, it feeds into the whole abortion debate. Whenever the sense of self crystallizes, some people say it's even like as you get older and begin to use language, things like that. Um, it's so limited. It's so lonely. It's so non-tribal. It's so not interconnected. Water reminds me of the truth, that in truth, I am interconnected. The same water flows through me. I take a piss. That water goes up into a tree, which transpires into the air, which goes up into the clouds, which falls back on the land, maybe directly back onto me, maybe into a, a, the ground, which feeds a plant that I then in turn eat, so it's back in me. This interplay is a real tangible thing. Myself is so much bigger than I've been taught, and I can't think of a thing that reminds me of that more than the actual actuality of water that I am immortal. This little part of myself that I call Gumby, that's got a limited lifespan. But the actual reality of what I really am is huge. I don't need to fear death. Um, yeah, the, the implications of recognizing that you are, in fact, water are profound. Um, and I wanted to share a story Yay. that I actually read this is tom brown jr and he shares the story at the end of his standard course if you take a class up there with tom brown in new jersey and this is just uh part of the story he calls it grandfather and the fisherman and it's a story all about choice but it's kind of a long story and i wanted to focus on the part that was around water because this to me is when i think about what does it look like to treat water reverentially um this is what i always picture another flow entered this morning Grandfather drifted slowly down the trail to the stream. Whether he knew I was there or not, however, he showed no interest and continued walking slowly toward the stream. 
He stood for a long time, gazing at the water. He glanced up and down the stream leisurely, yet methodically, as if searching for something. His eyes rested on the Cathedral of Cedars for a longing moment and caught the glisten of a tear on his cheek. To me, he appeared as if he was about to enter a temple, about to see God. As I sat there, Grandfather approached close to the water's edge and stood with his arms raised in an attitude of worship. Looking up and downstream as if searching, he paused at every glistening riff and misty hollow with his gaze. I could clearly see the streams of tears on his cheeks glistening in the sun and the contented smile on his face. He knelt down solemnly and touched the water, ever so gently, watching his own concentric rings ripple and mix with those of the water striders. He began to stroke the water as if it were a living being, looking deep into its color, to the mosaic of sand and pebbles at the bottom. He drew his face close to smell the water. Then he took a light sip. He sat back with the water in his mouth and swished it back and forth. His actions would have put the most experienced wine tasters to shame. <laughs> Reaching deeper into the water with cupped hands, he raised the water to the Creator in thanksgiving. Then, and only then, did he drink. Standing erect, once again he dropped his blanket, his sole garment, and entered the water. I could see his entire body trembling with excitement and the smile on his face as he lay back in the water was one of total rapture. To society, water is something to guzzle, put here for its use or misuse and never given a second thought. To grandfather, water was Earth Mother's blood, a precious gift for all things living and growing, not just for humans. He always approached water that way, solemnly, in reverence, like a child. Even though he had swum in thousands of different waters, stood at the foot of the most magnificent waterfalls, and drunk the purest waters of the earth, all his life he still entered water this way. Grandfather savored everything in life as he savored the water, fully and with all his senses, to a state of utter rapture. Mm. And Grandfather was Stocking Wolf. It's the uh, old Apache elder, uh, Lippin Apache elder, that taught Tom Brown Jr. when he was a boy. Um, wilderness survival skills as well as much, much else. God. See, it makes me feel bad that i got a Planet Fitness membership. <laughs> but... Um, at the beginning, you know, Gumby has these guitar strums, and sometimes they're a little obscure. When he said Rain Talker, that's that's a name that I felt like was a appropriate name for me. Yeah, we all came up with mountain names at one point, and Teresa was Rain Talker. She's really good at knowing when it's about to rain. And actually cued me into a characteristic of rain I hadn't noticed before, where it gives a warning rain. There's a little bit of sputtering, spittering rain, and then it'll pause for a moment, almost as if gently saying, like, it's about to rain. <laughs> and it, it can be different in uh, different parts of the world, but around here, around North Carolina, it's kind of about somewhere between five and ten minutes of warning that you get, and I just feel like that's such a great connection to have with the environment. So... Because in the beginning of this podcast, I said, you know, I'm not really a water person, um, but I'm discovering that side of me now. I just wanted to give a quick thank you to the clouds and to the thunder beings and to the water beings and, of course, to water. And I think I will drink to that. And Gumby? Yeah, and I am so thankful for rain. I love rainy days. I love the sound of rain pattering on my roof. I love the feeling of the low clouds making me feel safe, like there's a warm blanket over me. Um, I've had groups of kids before where it was a rainy day and they didn't want to go outside, and I had to talk with them about how water is life. And if you want to look for a miracle, look in the sky. There is nothing more precious 
to the universe, to life, than water. And we live on a planet that's so rich with the most valuable thing we have ever found that it falls from the sky on top of our heads. Mm-hmm. Manna from heaven. So I am thankful for the rain, the lakes, the oceans, and all waters. And I'll drink to that. Mm-hmm. Drinking water. <laughs> and I'm thankful that we got a comment from Rhea in, I, ho- I hope I'm saying that right, in Seattle, Washington. And she said, oh, now I'm a Gumby Montgomery fan. So good. She must know you. <laughs> and she said that Gumby reminds her of John Young, who also mentored under Tom Brown Jr. And we, of course, read the story about grandfather from Tom Brown Jr. So I wanted to read that quote in particular with this podcast. Yeah, well, now I'm a Rhea fan because I like people who like me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I have studied with Tom Brown Jr. and with John Young. So uh, to be compared to John Young, I definitely take as a compliment. Uh, <laughs> I am definitely <laughs> I'm definitely not comparing myself to John Young. But, uh, yeah, thank you, and we're glad that you like the podcast, and I hope you're still listening. And if anyone out there, um, if you'd like to review us, comment, or have any questions for us, please contact us. Our website is www.escapingsociety, that's all one word, .weebly, with a B, .com, escapingsociety.weebly.com. You can also look us up on Facebook. Just type in Escaping Society, and you'll probably see our burning rocking chair picture. And we thank you for listening, as always. Goodbye. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no 